I'm Megan. I'm Tyler. And this is The Office Hours, the podcast where two literature professors analyze the great American story. Hey, Tyler. Hey, Megan. We're back for part two of season three, episode one. I thought about writing up a thing like previously on The Office Hours. Oh, <laughs> like, I love that. <laughs> and inserting like, like flashbacks to our conversation. Uh-huh. Like, I'm too lazy for that. But... <laughs> Uh, but yeah, this is our first like two-parter episode. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of surprised it took us this long to get there, but it just, yeah, I feel like we, we were just hearing, you know, we were over an hour in and realizing how it was going to fall apart if we had to speed through the number of things that we still had, which I think goes to something we talked about last time. And that's what's happened with the form of it and the way that it is split between Scranton and Stanford because it just feels like it gives us even more and there's so much new stuff that's at Stanford in addition to it being just thematically a kind of amazing episode yeah no it's I mean like I just just the just the whole you know title itself gay witch hunt when I when I read that I was like well we're in for it here and this pulls on so many threads about Michael Scott's sexuality that you have raised, that that's one thing I'm really excited to dig into. So, um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, should we start first with which comes first, revision or regrets or the um, receptionist corner? Do we have something from the weekly receptionist? I just checked the email and we do. It's a long email. <laughs> Whoa. Okay, I'm I'm blown away. I cannot wait. So let's let's start here. Okay, it's from Greased Weasel. Uh, oh, sweet, so, hey, Greased Weasel. Yeah, we've got the email form because now it gives more space than Instagram comments. Yeah, I feel like I should. And this was sent eight days ago, and I feel bad I haven't like responded or whatever. But this is the response. So, um, okay. Whoa, whoa. This <laughs> is. This is going to be important for my own revision and regrets. So here we okay, go. Okay. Good, so we're starting from, here. Here we go. This is from Grease Weasel. Hello. Megan is correct about Jim and Pan's mind control prank. Okay, I'm just going to stop right there, Grease Weasel. And just say, uh, you know, I was such a fan of you and now it lost me. Okay, here we go. It is Dwight who selects the coat rack as a test for Jim's telekinetic power, so everything rests on his actions. Dwight could have picked anything else in that office, even an item on his own desk, but Jim and Pan, hereafter referred to as Jam, somehow (laughs) knew beforehand he would pick the coat rack and set up the prank accordingly. That seems so fantastically improbable. A far more likely explanation is that the prank was improvised after Dwight made his selection for the test. Moreover, the point of the scene was, once again, another tiresome demonstration of how simpatico Jam is meant to be, and in contrast, how ill-suited Pam and Roy are. So that's the first part. Megan asked which episode Michael makes his stupid cow I picked up in a bar speech. (laughs) He's right when she thinks it was at the end of season one, episode six, Hot Girl. Did you also notice in that episode, the car park they're standing in at the end, at the end of the day, as they are all leaving. It's very different to the usual one seen in many scenes from season two onward. That's because season two was confirmed by the, once season two was confirmed by the network, filming shifted to Chandler Valley Center Studios in Van Nuys. 
ooh, Grease Weasel, you're bringing in external production context and you know how Megan feels about that. <laughs> no, I welcome it coming from people outside. I think I don't welcome it as my own research, but it's interesting because we actually have talked about parking lots kind of a lot and it's a very different parking lot, different building. There's also a part that was in season one when they're kind of out, Jim and Pam are sort of out on like a balcony-ish. It seems like there's sort of external stairs. So the whole structure of the building is different in that way. Wow. Huh. Okay. I'm going to have to look at that um but i like your rule we can bring in production stuff if it's from others but yes. we will not research i like this you also discussed when michael first mentions his mother's relationship with jeff to the best of my memory he mentions jeff in season three the merger and then oh, again yes. in that same season in phyllis's wedding when he references his mother's marriage to jeff so looks like we'll be getting there soon some under oh, go ahead sir this is exactly the kind of thing I need when we pose when we pose questions. So you said it was season three, episode what? Five? Uh, Grease Weasel does not mention which episode. The merger, though. The merger, so okay. Probably. Okay, great. So um, we can move forward. Um, oh, so that's pretty soon. Well, what? it's in season three. We're in the right season. Okay, so we're going to learn about Jeff soon. Okay, some under, other random things I hope you find interesting, and apologies if you were already aware of them. I got to say, I like Grease Weasel's vibe. You know, there's... There's a wealth of knowledge here and and, a, and and strong opinions, but an inviting tone. So I'm Yeah, I agree. I agree. You know? Willingness to call us out, especially in this case, since it's you. Okay, well <laughs> and I was willingness yeah. to be wrong also. You wealth, know. wealth of knowledge. Good. And well, I hear though that you um you've kind of planted a seed actually before the episode that I should be a little worried. Oh yeah. You are gonna come back and prove <laughs> me wrong. And let's see if you prove Grease Weasel wrong too. Yeah, it's a little intimidating, but um, I'm up to the challenge. Okay, so the other things that were mentioned here, uh, oh, this is an interesting quandary. Do I? Well, I'll mention it. In season five customer survey, Michael phones his mother to announce his fake engagement to Holly. I think this is the first time we actually hear her voice, oh. and the part was played by Academy Award nominated actress June Squibb. Okay, oh. so we, we will see. Um, I now know June Squibb, but good to know. Also, M Michael gets engaged. Wait, oh, it's a fake engagement. Anyway, okay, in season one, healthcare, when Michael is trying to give his staff a boost, he talks to someone on the phone about taking a ride on the elevator that goes down to a mine. The other person, the person on the other end of the phone was played by Creed. Yes. Um, that's awesome. <laughs> I keep forgetting about this mine tour. As I was, <laughs> I was re-listening to one of the episodes and you were talking about the mine and yeah. I was, oh, I forgot about that. Um, I, I think, because I've, I've heard about this, the thing about Creed, and I think that that was before he had ever had a speaking part in, like, the actual, in the main show. I don't think he had spoken before. I can't remember now if that's correct, but, uh, um, oh. yeah, so it's just his voice, and once you know, I never noticed it until I had heard that, but then <laughs> once I go back, then you can hear it. Is he one of the writers as well? I don't, well, I don't think so. Somebody will write in and tell us. There's so many. I don't know. <laughs> um, okay, so two little more points uh, from Greased Weasel. It wasn't until Booze Cruise in season two that the actors cast in supporting roles, Angela, Kevin, Oscar, et cetera, were confirmed as series regulars. I think up until that point, they were essentially employed week to week, and now it would be hard to imagine the series without them. Wow. Oh 
Wait, that was Angela who? Angela, Kevin, Oscar, etc. So sounds like supporting roles. Maybe Meredith. Huh. Would Kelly be included in that? Huh. Interesting. I mean, I guess so. Like, even though she was a writer, so I guess she was more, she's like on in that way, but not necessarily as a character. Two of the background staff in season one were actually accountants for the production and were asked by Greg Daniels if they would like a little acting work as well. Well, oh I my thought- gosh. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Are they the ones who look like they are actually accountants? Yeah, right, right. Yeah, probably. Uh, Grease Weasel concludes, while I thought it was interesting, keep up the very fine work, regards. So thank you, Grease wow, Weasel, for writing wonderful. in so yes, extensively. Love all the details. Love the capacity to call up the specific episodes. Amazing. It's impressive. It's really impressive. Um do you have anything from Instagram or anything you want to bring I to the receptionist, don't. weekly receptionist? I do not. I do not. But this this gave us, this was a wealth of information for the, for the weekly receptionist. Do you, I guess the question here is, do you want to respond oh. Oh, about ready. your take on the coat rack? And let me apologize. Someone is doing some leaf blowing or something right outside of my window that seems very loud. I'm not sure if it's going to show up on the podcast or not, but these are the circumstances we have and we are forging ahead. I can't hear anything right now, but um, but it, anyway, they, yeah. They, uh, they moved away. But anyway, okay. Tyler, Tyler what's, what's your response to this? Let's enter revisions and regrets. And let me just say that you and Grease Weasel will be regretting your opinion. <laughs> <laughs> No. Um, okay. So before, okay. So you texted me and you were like, Hey, don't forget, you gotta, you know, rewatch the scene. So I was like, I'm going to rewatch the scene, but I'm also going to rewatch it with Jen as an objective third party. And I was like, I need you to watch this scene and just tell me, you know, whether you think this was planned or improvised. And Jen was definitive in saying it was improvised. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she's like, well, Dwight picks the coat rack, just like you argued, just like Grease Weasel said. But again, I submit to you that, and this was the question I said to Jen. I said, okay, okay, okay. What if Dwight had picked something else? What would Jim, you know, what was to have happened? And she was like, well, Jim probably would have like come up with some reason that he couldn't do it then. And then he would, um, uh, you know, tr- bring it up later or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. So this all hinges on a great amount of luck. And what we have learned over the course of these episodes is that Jim plans his pranks meticulously, right? <laughs> he nudges the desk. He, you know, like this, this he is not, he does not improvise. He is uh, an incredible planner. So here's my argument for, okay. and I have two possibilities but they both i think go hand in hand i mean there's whatever so the first is and i felt this the very first time is that now i need some context for you now in stage magic i'm gonna refer to a concept i've looked up and have heard previously but there is a concept called a force and a force and this is from wikipedia but also don't worry I downloaded a 1933 book called 202 Methods of Forcing. Um, but a force is a method of controlling a choice made by a spectator during a trick. 
Some oh. forces are performed physically using sleight of hand, such as a trick where a spectator appears to select a random card from a deck, but is instead handed a known card. Other forces use equivocation or the magician's choice to create the illusion of a free decision in a situation where all choices lead to the same outcome. Now, hmm. with that in mind, is it possible that Jim is forcing Dwight to a particular object? Now, let's look back at the script, okay? In the script, he says, ever since I was a little kid, like eight or nine, I could sort of control things with my mind. I don't believe you, continue. <laughs> it was just little things, you know, like I could make something shake or I could make a marble fall off the counter. You know, just little things. Now, I submit to you that in this moment, he's priming Dwight and that this is setting up a method of force in which he's <laughs> nudging Dwight to pick something that would shake. Now, in the, the shot of the scene, as when I look around, there's nothing really that Dwight could pick other than the coat rack. And I also note at the beginning of this episode, it begins with Dwight taking off his coat, right? Like when he shows up and then they make the whole yes. thing about the, the uh, um, tuxedo or whatever. So now you might say to me, but Tyler, but Tyler, I hear you, Grease Weasel. You're arguing loudly in your car on the, on the side of the road or whatever. But, but what about the marble? Now that's an interesting point. It's very specific, <laughs> isn't it? He says on the one, I could make something shake. That's highly generalized. And then, or I could make a marble fall off the counter. Highly specific. It's an interesting juxtaposition. And now I wonder if there was a backup plan, if he had said, okay, like make that, you know, X, like roll off the desk or something like that, you know. Now the other, now this is going conspiracy. And Jen, I was not persuaded by anything that I've said so far. And she was definitely not persuaded by this. Oh. But I believe that the shooting of the scene suggests that everybody in the office is in on it. Because when he says it to Dwight and Dwight's like, go on, continue. Phyllis is turned like he is not looking at Phyllis, but we are watching Phyllis and she has her head cocked and she's smiling. And we have Stanley who's like standing near Phyllis's desk. It is highly unusual, I would argue, that Stanley <laughs> stands and that Stanley would even care about this sort of situation, right? Um, now, the evidence slightly against this is that when Dwight, like, says, everybody look, what does he say? Something like, um, uh, hold on, he says, uh, excuse me, everyone, attention in the office, please. Jim is about to prove his telekinetic powers, and he needs absolute silence. Go ahead. Now, in that moment, we cut over to like Oscar and Angela, and they seem genuinely like, what's going on? But it also would make sense to me that they might not be specifically involved since they would be out of visual range, right? Like Jim's telekinesis couldn't reach that far. So, so my argument is this was fully planned and that uh, there was a conspiracy that other people were involved and that Jim was pushing Dwight to pick something that would shake like the coat rack or a marble something that would roll off which perhaps Stanley or Phyllis or Pam would be involved in that's my argument 
Is this also a representation of how a white man just won't say he's wrong? Who can say? <laughs> Who can say? But for the sake of argument, that's my claim. Tyler, my mind is blown. I don't know if I agree with you, but that was a brilliant argument, a rich text in and of itself. Let me tell you the the level at which you engaged with the evidence and not only the most obvious pieces of evidence, but going to things like reading Stanley, reading the angle of Phyllis's face, your research and synthesis of sources, um, really incredible. And you've kind of brought in a different dimension for us here. And I guess this is my follow-up question for you. And that is this, what is the difference between pranking and magic? Ooh. Because, right, like Jim is a prankster. Michael aspires to be a magician. Mm. But does Jim actually, so are you, are you positing that <laughs> Jim has this really professional level grasp on what I would call magic theory? Mm. Mm. Well, first, I just have to say, like, hearing you evaluate me is so wonderful because, like, it's just been so long since I've been graded on anything and I just want to be great. You know, what I mean? don't you miss sometimes, like, just, you know, being graded and, and, uh, don't you, you ever know. send it, send anything out? There? <laughs> yeah. So I'm just loving your, like, okay, I like your texture. It's also interesting because I can tell what you're looking for in an essay. You're like, okay, nice textual yeah. evidence, working with sources. But yeah. at the same time, you're like B minus because uh, is magic really pranking? You didn't read the assignment. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a really interesting theoretical question because I think you're right. I think Jim, as represented, would not be a person who would be into magic mentalism or these kinds of trickeries. So it seems unlikely. I still, but to me, your and Greased Weasel and Jen's idea that it's all improvised just seems to go against like my feeling of how like how effective a, a prank it would be do you know what i mean like if he if he fails it will only confirm dwight's sense that like jim's a charlatan so he can't fail he's he's maybe taking a big risk but i do yeah i think i don't think jen's wrong in the idea that he can he can find a way to bounce back or a way to reframe it because i guess the question is like does he always win in his pranks you know does he always win oh that's a good question not and i guess what constitutes winning at a prank too i mean like this is clearly a win thing mm. where say he moves his desk into the bathroom like eventually dwight finds it right they play hot cold <laughs> he calls it's a prank what is a prank maybe i don't know <laughs> we gotta come back to this because now i'm thinking about the vending machine and i'm like has he won is the winning of the prank basically like the fact that dwight puts the money in the machine is that when it that he's that you're sort of pulled into participating yeah is it or is, like are pranks they involve some kind of belief, like getting somebody yeah. 
yeah. to believe something that's kind of wrong. So like where he's making the commitment with those coins, like he's kind of, although I don't know if that's belief, but there's like a buy-in. I don't know. This is taking us to a lot of questions, but I think you might be dodging the question of Jim and magic theory. I think you're right. I think I did notice that I dodged it and was hoping you wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't notice that. Um, but yeah, no, it doesn't strike me as in his character. What do you want me to say, Megan? You want me to say I was wrong? Is that what you want? <laughs> what I think you have done is made it impossible. Maybe. I'm not going to concede fully, but you might have made it impossible for me to definitively prove my position because you've brought in all of these possibilities of the things that magicians can do. You know, the thing that we haven't really addressed is the umbrella of it all. If if it's totally improvised, it's not just Jim. It's really Pam improvising. It really is. And... and so she has to grab the umbrella instantly and like without anybody noticing and i i don't know i'm curious about the placement of that umbrella because there are some coat racks where the umbrella would be within the bottom you know what i mean so um anyway maybe it's, it's kind of under pam's desk that's possible i mean she is good at improv but in improv, we know she's the best one in the office in improv. And here's another just option for interpretation. Maybe this isn't the most realistic scenario. I mean, it's possible that it was improv and maybe it's not the most believable thing that they could pull off, but sometimes you do just pull off something really great. And it's true as yourself with what you can do well just to round this out i will say i did look at the full script including the deleted scenes they do reference jim's telekinetic powers but it's just in a um talking head with dwight saying you know um with great power comes great responsibility but i don't believe he has powers or whatever so there's no um nothing one way or the other it is very interesting that pam just holds up the umbrella wordlessly um, yeah which leads to a lot of the ambiguity here. Uh, not that it's that ambiguous. It's just I'm refusing to let it go. I got to say, I'm enjoying this, though. I feel like we should have more of these uh, fierce yeah. debates, fierce and respectful debates about basic yeah. <laughs> basic facts of what happened in the show. <laughs> fierce and respectful debates. I like this. Yeah, I think that we should. I definitely think we should. All right. Well, everybody write in with your hot takes. You know, do you still agree with Megan? Have I convinced anyone? Is there a third or fourth, you know, interpretation here? Let us know. Please do. Tyler, I have in the revision and regret section, actually one confession I need to share with you. And that is about magic. I recently saw a magician at an event it was at a fundraising event and there was this magician kind of going around in the crowd and he was amazing. What? <laughs> it was really impressive. And I think the thing that I didn't know is that magicians could have personalities that are different than, <laughs> I guess like, <laughs> I don't know, the Michael Scott playing magician 
personality. I feel like I had, and this is, this is bias. This is discriminatory on my part for sure. I think I had this very narrow view of what a magician can be. And I think part of it is that magician takes himself way too seriously in a really, I don't know, kind of off-putting way. But this guy, he was wearing a jacket. It was like kind of maroon, maybe. I, I don't know. That's I don't know how relevant that is, but he just, he was just surprising. He was funny. He had a kind of unique attitude. Like he kind of messed around with the people he was doing card tricks on. And the stuff he did was just unbelievable. And it makes me want to read that 1933 book about force because it goes to whatever the thing that they're doing, whatever mental thing they're controlling is pretty impressive. So, so although I'm not surrendering on the Jim and Pam dispute, I, I am surrendering to you on the value of magicians. I think it's really brave of you to <laughs> confront and overcome your magicianism. Um, and I think that, you know, that's, I think you should be applauded for that. You know, you've, you've worked through your internalized anti-magician um, yeah. bias. And uh, yeah, this is very exciting. Very exciting. Should this become a magic podcast? <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Tyler, for enabling this personal growth in me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's my pleasure. <laughs> Maybe you aside like an annex episode where you get to talk about magic the whole time then it's mm. a separate episode and people can choose to listen to it or not listen to it. <laughs> or just instantly delete it sounds just good instantly delete and say nope not this one so before we move on i do have one more segment for the revisions and regrets and that goes to a point you raised and that was about will and grace oh the role of harry connick jr Wait, mm. Harry, not Henry, right? Harry Connick Jr., that's his name? Harry, yeah. Okay. So you were referring to the interview that Angela does where she says that sometimes she watches Will and Grace, but it's very loud. She mm. does like it when Harry Connick Jr. comes on. He's so talented. Mm -hmm. And you pointed out very rightly, I think, that you have to, like, in order to catch the episodes when someone who's sort of a guest star is on, you raise the question of, you know, how often is she watching this? Mm. So looked into it a little bit. Harry Connick Jr. was on Will and Grace 24 episodes between oh. 2002 and 2006. But there are a total of 246 episodes of Will and Grace. Wow. Okay. So he's at like a 10% huh. of episodes. Does that affect your your reading at all i mean it's more than i thought it was gonna be um but it's also yeah i still think i mean that's a long running lots of shows did wait yeah. did um were his all clustered were, was it like he was there for one season or something like that this is a good question and you're asking me to dig deeper then eh. <laughs> then i, I still don't it i mean i still think she's watching she's watching more his, his was over four seasons because his 24 were between 2002 and 2006. Oh, yeah, no. no she's yeah, watching. that had to be over four, four seasons. She's watching more than she would like to let on. Yeah. She's a, a hypocrite? Yeah, I mean, 
not not out of character for Angela, but hundred percent. I guess who could who could resist the charms of Will and Grace? Even <laughs> not even Angela. Indeed. Yeah. So that's all I've got for that, Tyler. How are we going to get back into this episode <laughs> that okay. we started, went in pretty far, and derailed <laughs> because we just couldn't do it all? I had like four note cards. And what I do as we talk is I'll often like just cross off topics mm -hmm. and lines. Um, and so there are things on here that are like, I, I have a lot of things not crossed off. So I presume that we didn't discuss them, but if we did, you know, let me know. But my, the thing just in terms of topics, um, I don't think we really talk much about Stanford, about Andy. Yeah. Um, we didn't know that. I don't really think we talked about the Roy and Pam of it all no. in this episode. And I wanted to talk about those. Um, I had one philosophical question to ask you. <laughs> um, and then of course that we have to continue our discussion of what happens in the conference room and specifically the kiss. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. And I have a bunch of notes on like some of the lines there. So that's kind of what I've got. Oh, in the ending of the episode. I think we should start then from the conference room. Okay, great. We had talked some about that. And yeah, so maybe we start from conference room and then we we meander on over to Stanford. Um, well, just one quick note is that <laughs> in I believe it's in the conference room scene that Dwight says something about wanting all the other office gays to <laughs> um <laughs> to identify themselves. I think that's yes. what it is. Yes. <laughs> I just thought. That I was like, they really are, I think, subtly, but consistently emphasizing him as a Nazi. And I just found that really amusing. I just wrote office gays dash Nazi um, uh, because of his kind of like, you know, you need to, uh, we need to like identify you and track you and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and you know, that, that's interesting to put next to a point you made the last time that was about when Dwight is in Michael's office and he says something like Michael asks, wait, now I forget what Michael says before. Dwight says something like, well, you could just treat, you could just talk to or assume yeah. everyone is gay and then, you know, speak accordingly. And then that's where Michael says, yeah, like everyone would want me to treat them like they're gay. And you thought that seemed a little bit out of character for Dwight. I did. Yeah. And clearly this comment seems to suggest that, yeah, Dwight Dwight does not want to sit with the uncertainty of who is and who is not gay in the no, office. Not at all. Although when I think when when um Michael initially asks him, he says, you know, can you tell who's gay and who's not? And he's like, Yes, of course. Yeah, but then it's like, what about Oscar? And it's like, no. And it's like, well, he is, you know. So Yes. And Dwight doesn't Dwight say, Well, he's not dressed in women's clothing. Right. Yes. Yeah. So this, I mean, you know, just the the first part of what's funny about this episode is the entire idea of like what is gay and i think you were kind of talking about this like is to be gay to perform gender in a particular way you know like and this gets us into like the long history of of queerness and the ways in which like sexuality you know and gender you know um became bound together in the 19th century whereas they like weren't before or whatever so this idea that you can read it under the surface of the body or yes. that queer queer desire or queer acts would somehow be like legible as gender divergence or dissidence or 
gender inversion, <laughs> quote unquote. The, you know. the fact, oh, I love that point. And the fact that Dwight so intensely literalizes that too. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's like, oh, not wearing women's clothing. Like, you know, as it, and I mean, it's interesting too, because it's like this episode is at a moment in our cultural conversation where there's like zero to nothing about trans people mm -hmm. or identities. Um, but which is just as an aside, it's always kind of interesting to my students when I remind them that like, well, you know, earlier there was this kind of idea that like, oh, to be gay essentially meant to be trapped, you know, a woman trapped in a man's body yeah. or trapped in a woman's body, like in the late 19th century, that kind of emerges. And they're yeah. like, what? And I'm like, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, it'd be interesting if those, if those stereotypes and ideas are starting to fall away or get hmm. shifted. Um, but yeah, not for Dwight. Uh, but the things that I, yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to put this on the table and see where you want to go with it. But I guess it's the whole Michael of it all. You've long brought up Michael's kind of queerness in many ways, certainly his desire for Ryan, the temp. Um, but this episode brings it right to the foreground. He says, like, if I was gay, oh, let me find the line. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah what does he say uh well he says oh okay because phyllis is like well we all thought you were gay because of your ties and matching socks and he's like well i just like to look good oscar says you sound pretty defensive no i'm just coming out myself i'm coming out hetero <laughs> um and he says the only signal i'm sending say sorry i was just gonna say i mean the reason that coming out is necessary is because it is not the expectation yes and so like that's why right people don't need to come out the only reason people don't need to come out hetero is because that is so strongly assumed as the norm and the fact so there's something kind of funny here michael coming out as hetero when he has this history of people thinking that he was gay i think that's so right and i also think there's something interesting i don't know this happens whenever i teach like my lgbtq lit class for example it's like as queer people broadly defined start coming out like increasingly there will be moments where kind of like straight people need or not need to but like seem to feel the need to as a way to contextualize whatever it is that they're going to say and what's interesting to me about that is like it it kind of like it breaks the idea that everybody in the room is straight or mm. you know, or should be but and so then people do have to come out, but it's not the same kind of coming out, right? Because it's not like yeah. I'm saying this, uh, you know, thing that might be shameful to me or that might be difficult or you know whatever. Yeah. Um, do you mean if people say something like, you know, as a straight person, right, I think right. this, that kind of tagging basically of their yeah, or, or as a cis person or something like that. But it is always interesting to me because it's always kind of awkward. It's like a lot of folks have never had to qualify themselves in any way. And so just the presence of queerness kind of can sometimes hmm. shrink the, the strength of heteronormativity. Yeah. In the and yeah. so I was kind of reading that in a way here a little bit where it's like, mm -hmm. but it's part, it's also just Michael's defensiveness. So he says, look, if I was gay, I would be the most flamboyant gay you have ever seen. I would be leading the parade covered in feathers and just I would be waving that rainbow flag <laughs> what are your thoughts <laughs> God, I, don't know. <laughs> I I think it's hilarious I wish I 
had thoughts. I would like to see this version of Michael in the feather boa. Um, I mean, I guess he kind of similarly to, to Dwight's comment about um, Oscar not dressing in women's clothing. I think his, I don't know. I mean, I guess this goes maybe to what Oscar says about him, some of the mixed signals that he's sending. Because right here, I mean, on the one hand, his image of what is it to be gay is to be in feathers in the gay pride parade is like the kind of, it, it goes to one sort of extreme, kind of like he does with the going to watch, to like Dwight go find some gay porn. Mm -hmm. like. We have to go, oh, like you you talked about him saying the the line when he says something like, you know, corporate has made me responsible for ending oh, 100,000 years of being weirded out by gays, like something, something like that. So okay. there's this intensity of reaction where, yeah, to embrace and to accept Oscar means that Michael would have to be in his imagined identity as a gay person, be like the most openly out clearly identifiable mm -hmm. gay person. I like I guess he then also fits what Dwight wants. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? He wants kind of readability. Um that's a good word. But or on the early at the beginning of the meeting is where he's saying, uh, we're all homos, homo sapiens. Okay. <laughs> so I think he's actually got this split, this sort of dual thing. And one is the sort of like a kind of normalizing and the other is not that. So he says, we're all homos, homo sapiens. Gays aren't necessarily who you think they are, people. I mean, anybody could be gay, businessmen, like antique dealers or hairdressers or accountants. Oscar, why don't you take this opportunity to officially come out to everybody here? However you want to do it, go ahead, stand up. I'm doing this for you. Um, so on the one hand, like he's doing this kind of thing of trying to normalize and saying, you know, it could be anybody, businessmen, we're all businessmen. But then he specifically goes to like the businesses that are coded as right for gay men. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, I keep thinking about this episode as like we actually one question. I don't know how much we've circled back to it, but a big question at the beginning of the podcast was, does Michael Scott learn? And also, can human beings learn? Like, are mm -hmm. we capable of learning and change? I, I mean, I feel like that's been one question. Or specifically, can, like, white, cis, <laughs> straight men who are socialized in a certain way, can 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 they learn? You know, anyway. But yeah. also, does the... learning And how is learning narrated? Yes, yes. Too, because we talked about, you know, like, what are... Like, how does the show, how does an episode work? And do characters learn a neat little lesson by the end or do they not? Yeah, because what I kind of love about this episode is he will both learn something and not. Um, mm -hmm. but we'll come back to that in a second. But just that, yeah. oh, and that, but you're raising the question too of like the sitcom as a form. Like, can the sitcom allow its characters to change mm -hmm. and to what degree? And so when he makes that list and arrives at accountant, it's almost like he is learning something here it's like oh wait like even this person right in front of me um I also think it's so funny the line before it did you know that gay used to mean happy when I was growing up it meant lame and now it means a man who makes love to other people. <laughs> yes. 
I don't have a like reading on that other than just I don't know it's just really funny um, makes love is also just a hilarious yeah. hilarious word choice um I also forgot he says I don't care if you're gay or straight or a lesbian or overweight just get in here right now like maybe you mentioned that line before but just the no. way that he understands difference is yeah bizarre yeah. um and sliding but it's like anything that's other or not you know mm -hmm. um okay but then um uh wait do you have any thoughts on the phyllis of it all he's asking her did you experiment with other women a lot of women do just i love it that that phyllis um that phyllis fills us in on this this background of of Michael, but that I had mentioned. So I don't know if I really have other stuff on Phyllis specifically. I mean, I guess the fact that that Phyllis is, because isn't it Dwight says she makes absolutely no attempt to be feminine? Yeah, yeah. What about Phyllis? So I guess she's this other, I mean, I don't know that anyone else reads her the way that Dwight is reading her, but I guess it's just an, another kind of challenge to Dwight's theory of how you can read sexuality on people right. um yeah so then like we get you know we get the word that she is married but i i don't i don't know i think just just i i'm grateful to phyllis for giving us this information about michael this is the new is this this is the first moment when we find out she's engaged right isn't yeah that, yeah is that right um so that's a big shift for season three just in yeah. terms of our like things that are new we've got michael's dating i think right or do we not know if that's true yet did you, i don't know did he i don't think did he talk about carol in this episode at all can't remember or jan i don't i don't think he's i mean in the last so that it ended on season two with him talking about getting the girl right and getting carol while he still sort of has his new york girl and we go from you're right so we go from pam being engaged to now phyllis being engaged right phyllis having a ring and pam making a big deal of, out of it and pam now not having a ring right you know, we have this shot where it kind of like zooms into her ringless hand and then that's where she explains so that's interesting too the camera it's like the eye of the camera is sort of drawing attention to the thing that marks you as you know engaged or not one thing, this is a complete side note, so there's really nowhere to go with it. But I just wanted to note about that scene. Pam's, when it zooms in, Pam has this kind of light colored nail polish, but that's sort of scratched off, like parts of wow. it are scratched off. And I really appreciated that detail because I think that nails don't look nearly raggedy enough on TV. Mm -hmm. This might just be because I am a nail biting nail polish scratching person but i think that there are a lot of us out there and i think we're underrepresented yeah. on television yeah. and so i just felt like this was realistic you know like pam's hands have uh have been going through it well i love that point too because it kind of brings us back to this idea that the show is trying to some extent show the unvarnished unglamorous yeah. nature of wage labor in american capitalism and that relates also to like their Kelly's vision of what it means to be gay. You know, it's like Oscar's like, yeah, I'm not Sir Ian McKellen. Like I'm just a, a accountant at a middle mid-range failing paper company, you know? So 
the chip nail polish seems like a great, you know, I don't know. It's always interesting when Michael seems to be internalizing this kind of consumerist media discourse of what life is supposed to look like versus what every, everybody around him is doing. Um, you know, but, oh, yeah. This this reminds me, takes me back to Jan's nails, and uh, I find them especially noticeable in the client when they go to Chili's. But this is first because she's laying out like, her papers on the table as she and Michael are talking and planning. Oh yeah, and she has pink pink nail polish, and they look um, like they look more like a manicure. They look professionally done, whereas Pam's do not look professionally done and are like worn down and not. Um, up to snuff or whatever and in women in the workplace sorry this is getting very very scattered but i just have to follow this nail thread a little bit more when jan does the women in the workplace seminar she talks about dressing for the job that you want to have not the job that you currently have and right. it actually feels like nails are part of that you know like nails are part of your sending your signal of how professional you are and how together you have it and your nails can be this sign like nails that can themselves be kind of a tell right that you don't have it as together as you're supposed to oh i love this i love i'm now i'm gonna be like laser focused on nails. <laughs> well i would just say that, that in that scene with pam she doesn't have it together because she turns to ryan to be like can you believe this when yeah. he says we're all homos uh homo sapiens yeah. and then ryan's like what um, so she really is on, she's rattled, um, at yeah. the loss of Jim and I would already, I'm just going to jump around, but the final scene where Dwight has the gaydar and she laughs and then her smile fades to something else, you know, nostalgia or, um, loss or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. It was just really interesting to see Pam's facial expressions, um, there. Yeah. But before we move away from this conference scene, I just wanted to say, um, it's just interesting. He says, look, if I was gay, I would be the most flamboyant gay you've ever seen. Yeah. On the one hand, I was like, well, do people who are not queer imagine themselves as queer? Like, is this an indication of him having thought about this? Hmm. Or is this a social discord, a, a kind of defensive uh, you know, an, like another defensive framing of his gender performance. Because earlier he's like, I'm so far not that way, so I can't even understand. And so here he's like, I'm so far not the flamboyant one. Or is this actually, is it not so unusual? Like, I actually am genuinely unsure whether people like do cis and straight people like sort of be like, oh, if I was a woman or if I was a man or if I was gay or if I was, you know, bisexual mm -hmm. or something like that, do they imagine what kind of person they would be do you know what I mean like yeah, that's interesting um, yeah I don't have a point other than just I you know one could read this as evidence that Michael has actually thought a bit about yeah what, yeah where he might fit within a kind of social a queer social world um on the other hand I don't know because then we get the kiss and uh I don't know I just there's a lot of things I want to talk about here but I just like how the scene has Oscar say, I don't want to touch you, ever consider that. Um, yes. Because I do think there, you know, certainly was and probably still is this idea that like gay people are, you know, essentially hypersexual predators who, you know, are hungry for any and all 
sexual contact. And so, you know, it's a really nice moment here. It's like, no, fuck you. Like, I'm not interested in you um, just because you're a man or something like that. And then, but Oscar, like, he says, that was a good idea. Come on. Um, He said, Michael cries. I'm sorry I called you faggy. You're not faggy. You're a good guy. Um, Dwight says, Michael appears to be gay too. And yet he is my friend. I guess I do have a gay friend. And then Michael says, he's going to raise the stakes. I want to, I want you to burn this into your brains. Um, And they kiss. And uh, what always or what has stuck with me since watching it is um what it, where is the line yeah this he says i did it see i'm still here we're all still here <laughs> um wow and what i feel about this is that that okay and maybe this is disclosing too much about myself or whatever but like in the early times of my experience kissing other men in particular, mm-hmm. like kissing, but also, you know, I feel like kissing was especially scary and overdetermined, even more so than sex to some degree. Maybe this is just personal. Um, but like the feeling that Michael's having is like kind of like relatable to me. <laughs> the idea that like you're crossing a threshold of identity yeah. and embodiment and when you cross those thresholds, like there is no going back some, or it feels like you're going to disintegrate or something. You could be destroyed by your desire or what if you get destroyed by your desire or the object of your desire or whatever. So when he says like, I'm still here, Hmm. there's something actually quite beautiful to me about that line because Hmm. I think that his fantasy and possibly our heteronormative world social fantasy is that there is something so threatening and destructive about queer sex or queer, well, this isn't sex, but you know what I mean? Like queer contact that that it would annihilate you. And so anyway, I just, I just found that powerful. And then the fact that we're all still here, they, they witnessed it. They were a part of it. I mean, it's also fucking ridiculous and it is sexual harassment and a sexual violation. <laughs> like it is all those things. And the fact that he says, I did it, like is both narcissistic, right? It's like as if the, he made it all about himself, but then it is also about his desire. So you have been persuading me that Michael Scott is, he's got some queerness and it's no longer subtext. It is text. Um, so Wow. Oh, I love, I really love that reading of the I'm still here and the power of that line. And that puts in context for me a little bit, I think people's faces, because people's faces as they're watching it are like watching a car accident or like watching, you know, something terrible happening where it's both fascinating and scary. Like Ryan kind of has this way, this like turning away face Holly, on the other hand in contrast is like clapping and clapping (laughs) hands together and looking so so happy um oh my gosh there's just oof there's so much going on in this scene um this reminds me do you remember when the movie came out I think it was called in and out it was like in the 90s yeah one of the the first kind of major public movies where there were two men who kissed and I think that was all that happened, but right. it, I think it was just a kiss, right? But it was a scandal. Um, 
but anyway, I've actually got nothing to say about that. It just was sort of a little bit of context. This just made me made me think back to that. It is still really the case that like, you know, you'll see lots of like, oh, we have a we have a queer women character. Or we have queer women, you know, like because mm -hmm. I think lesbianism or queer women, you know, can fit into the the quote unquote male gaze to a degree yes. you know, that like we don't see, I think, a lot of we still don't see within mainstream context a lot of just like gay or bisexual men having yeah um, yeah intimate moments specifically yeah. sex but also kissing and yeah so I do think that is it I think you're right that's a taboo um in which we see when Dwight thinks about when Michael says I can picture Angela as a gay yes, woman exactly and Dwight gets that like creepy little smile because there is the hotness of the idea of the lesbian when it's when he's picturing it as Angela and he doesn't have the same attach the same meaning to it when he's picturing it as Phyllis um but yeah there is there is something definitely with the gender element of it there I think the back and forth between Michael and Oscar is so fascinating yeah. here so when Michael at first you know is going in like to try to embrace Oscar basically that thing when I mean, you already gave us this line, but when when Oscar says, no, no, I don't want to touch you, ever consider that, you're ignorant and insulting and small. And Michael really gets just very caught off guard um, yeah. and upset by, like, I think it kind of, something sort of sinks in for him there. And he sort of says, okay, mm, all right, um, sorry. And that's when he starts to go for the door to leave. And then Oscar, so there's this like back and forth where Michael is aggressively, forcefully grabbing and touching Oscar in the office in front of a meeting. But then Oscar has to kind of make him feel better. Like Oscar yeah. is the one then who has to comfort him. So Oscar says, Michael, I'm sorry. That was a good idea. Come on, come on. And then goes in to hug Michael. And when that happens, so when Michael is going for the door, Oscar then goes and like puts his, his arm out straight to like hold his arm. He's behind Michael, but to hold his arm against the door and to stop him from um, opening it and from getting out. And there was something about it that looked to me like it had the same form, I think, as kind of a romantic gesture. Mm. of and to be clear i'm not suggesting that that oscar has any romantic feeling or desire to do a romantic gesture to michael but there was something interesting to me because it still had there was something about that kind of the style of like going after somebody and like you know mm. stopping them from running out the door and then hugging them mm. so there was that and there's just this up and down like michael feels michael is genuinely really really upset and really crying and I could see there's this I don't know kind of problem potentially with sympathy you know where you're like going back and forth between feeling right. how horrifying this is for Oscar but then like we're getting pulled into sympathizing with Michael um but he does I think he does really genuinely feel very bad and feel really right. upset by it the kiss, though, so when he raises the stakes and goes to kiss Oscar, Michael's lips are, like, so tight and hard. Yeah. 
You yeah. know what I'm saying? <laughs> Oscar's trying to turn away, but his mouth is not fully closed. And Michael inserts his little solid lips kind of in there. Um, it just, <laughs> I don't know. Did you have any thoughts about the specifics of the kiss? I had written down a bunch of notes that I can't follow about the way it was shot. And you yeah. were kind of referencing some of that before, but about how it's kind of held in close up. And then there's yes. like, it was just interesting that like when they choose to show us reactions, but when they choose not to. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's it's really funny. I mean, with these things, I'm always thinking, okay, how does this read to a, to a homophobic audience or at least like a not, you know, not even sympathetic yeah. audience um and i think like you can't not i mean i think the whole thing is funny as such but it does like the joke does still is still about michael right like michael's bad boundaries michael's ridiculous behavior it's so clear that oscar doesn't want this yes that he, you know sort of yeah so um so to <laughs> the extent that they could i felt like they did a good job and the body language is so funny um oh. It's really good. And I then just, afterwards, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, I just sent you a picture of one of the shots <laughs> it's playing. And they're like, <laughs> their eyes are open. They're no, yes. <laughs> this guy touching it. Oscar is just, you know, like trying to bend. Yeah. <laughs> <escape> it. <laughs> the emotion in Michael's face, too. This is so emotionally intense for him. <laughs> so, Afterwards, he says, we're not in the playground anymore. There are new rules. We have to be mature, but we can't lose the spirit of childlike wonder. What is love anyway? Maybe it's supposed to break all the rules, like me and Jam, or Oscar and some guy. <laughs> Life is short when two people find each other what should stand in their way. I'm glad that today spurred social change. That's part of my job as regional manager. But you know what? Even if it didn't, at least we put this matter to bed. That's what she said. Or he said, oh, there's Gil, Oscar's roommate. I wonder if he knows. So just a couple of things. That last line just goes to your point about legend or readability. That was what you said. And like, I just, it's so smart to me that like he has learned nothing about um, <laughs> queerness <laughs> at all. You know, it's so that even that is like unreadable to him working backwards the uh but on the other hand he says that's what she said or he said and that does feel like a, a, a like learning something right that like yes. not everybody should be interpolated drawn into this joke as heterosexual um that and actually, the, is that like a profound statement of learning for michael to do i think that? so and also it's like working again the entire structure of the she said joke is usually about sexual suggestiveness for for she is the object right so it's like um that's hard that's what she said like uh -huh. so she in that is the kind of object of sexual i don't know I mean, but anyway so it's just in you know he's opening up to like imagining or narrating a sexual scenario in which yes would fit the role that he had typically scripted for women so that yeah. seems big to me does. and interestingly now it gets putting it into his framework like rather than it being the porn thing where he's like yes. 
trying really hard to kind of perform that this actually is rather beautiful, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like he's kind of putting it into his um his terms and his framework where there's something that becomes much more familiar here. Like there's something very familiarizing of it and putting it into a that's what she said, that's what he said format. Something interesting too, oh man, we're gonna have to have like a third episode about this, but just the performative kiss like so the idea because he's like we need to make a statement and then at the end he's like you know did i spur social change like who can say like there's just something interesting about the you know kissins are you know were like um protest Uh activist protest you know things um not events i don't know what you call them you know um protests uh and um so it's just an interesting like there is a history of kind of using the kiss as a as a social statement both among like queer political activists but also among kind of straight people who are appropriating queerness so i'm thinking around this time i'll have to look up the dates but of madonna and britney spears kissing on stage and you know it's like clearly a kind of this is transgressive and edgy you know, but also titillating for a, a kind of straight male audience, potentially. I don't know, you know, so so it's just interesting that he imagines himself as an agent of social change and that the kiss would do it. Um, yeah. And did I have any other points about that? I can't remember. Um, oh, just that. Um, okay, yeah, we've kind of talked about this before, but just flagging it for the future. Now that we have queerness out in the episode, at the very moment that it's out, like immediately it gets conscripted into the Jim and Pam love story because it's like, what is love anyway? Maybe it's supposed to break all the rules. And like, to me, and when two people find each other, what should stand in their way? It's like, nothing is standing in the way of Jim and Pam, except like, either, I mean, arguably heteronormativity, like <laughs> monogamy or, you know, whatever, you know, at this point, theoretically nothing because she's broken up with Roy but the way it's written makes it seem as if you know they suffer in the same way that Oscar and Gil might you know um (laughs) and anyway uh, and also it makes it as if Oscar and Gil being together is some sort of rule-breaking thing which like it is in the sense that you know gay marriage isn't legal and there's all these taboos and homophobias and all this but anyway it's just interesting how the the queerness gets read here as a kind of transgression that then gets written into a universalizing statement about love as such Hmm. yeah oh yeah one thing that i want to quick mention that this takes us back to also is the episode when they are cleaning the office and Oscar calls in sick and then Dwight goes on his mission to find out if Oscar is lying. Do you remember? And he, you know, he drives up and it's night and Oscar is arriving with Gil. And I remember you wondering at that point, like, does Dwight know, like, does, does Dwight know that Gil is a partner and not just a roommate and he just is very accepting of it (laughs) and or like does he not know and I think this shows us that he did not know and it was so far I guess this will connect to Gadar but it was so far off of his radar that it just was not like you just don't assume that two men are something other than roommates very similarly to Michael here and there's something where it's both 
idiotic and for some reason i always find it kind of sweet that when he's just like oh i wonder if gil knows yes it is sweet (laughs) (laughs) um quick question for you would you have taken the three months paid vacation in the car or would you have sued the company i would have taken the three months vacation (laughs) why say more um I think suing is just so uncertain. Like it takes, I would imagine it would take an enormous amount of time and money. I mean, I guess there are lawyers who do things where you only pay if you win, but like, I I don't know. It's It would seem to me that it would be really time consuming, really stressful and really expensive to try to sue for a chance. But like you think I'm Oscar going up against Dunder Mifflin corporate. I don't feel like I'm going to win. Yeah, that's um, a good point. And so, yeah, I would, I would take that. I love to get our our quote into the record. We get to an Oscar interview, and he's wearing a different outfit. So I think that this is maybe like the next day. It's something right that's before he's left, but not on the same day. So he says, "I was going to quit, but Jan offered me a three month paid vacation and a company car. All I had to do was sign something saying I won't sue. Gil and I are going to Europe. Kids, nice. sometimes it pays to be gay." <laughs> so Oscar I mean so I'm calling you Oscar um Tyler what do you think about Oscar's final message for the kids out there and would you to to give the question back to you would you take the paid vacation well when I was watching it this time I was like don't do that like get the get the like if they're offering you that that means that um you know they're worried yeah, that you get way yeah. more That's um, a good- but the more I thought about it, I do agree with you. It's like, you know, having, I have some friends who've done some lawsuits, you know, and it's just, it just sounds excruciating, you know. On the other hand, like, how do you make change at a place? I don't know, you know. Um, but a car would be nice. So <laughs> <laughs> it is interesting that he frames it as uh, it pays to be gay. Um uh <laughs> Because it's like a reversal of gay for pay. Um, So (laughs) I was just thinking about, huh, like that's, it's just interesting. Um, And he's, uh, yeah, like, well, it raises the question again, too. Like, who is watching this documentary? Because he's like, (laughs) oh, for the kids out there. And I'm like, would kids ever see this? Like, and also you have this video footage. Like, couldn't the video be subpoenaed and used in a lawsuit? Anyway, whatever. Um, it just was hilarious. It was really funny. And also, I think it speaks to the show's kind of cynical nature. It's It has a kind of cynicism about change. And it's kind of like, you know, Oscar himself isn't even that concerned about social change for other queer people at Dunder Mifflin. He's like, I got mine, like, whatever, you mm-hmm. know. Um, yeah, so and that's as much as I've got. Uh, I but guess I, my- yeah, yeah, go my- ahead one most dedicated here to spurring social change yes yeah (laughs) he's a real hero for the community he's the the real hero of the episode (laughs) well let's talk about somebody who's maybe not a hero um uh i'm curious about your thoughts on andy who went to cornell Mm -hmm. and we know right away (laughs) (laughs) as a person who lives you know uh near cornell it just is um Oh my gosh, I feel like you'll have new layers now to add to the Cornell reputation. So 
Okay, yeah. So now we've got the cast kind of split. We've got some new people coming in because Jim is at Stanford. We'll talk about Andy. But first of all, just a little framing on Jim. He has a little interview where he says something about, you know, like, why did I come to Stanford? Um, Easy, I got a promotion. And he's wearing a jacket now. That's like the distinction. The right. jacket is so big on him. It is like, yeah. does not, not look a like, good look. Does not look like the right fit. But you want to know what his promotion was? What? It is to assistant regional manager. No way. And it says it on his tag. So oh, he crap. All kind of signs on his desk. It is really hard to see, but I suddenly noticed watching this time. Oh, there's this little sign on his desk. So I'm going to pause. I had to pause, take a picture, and zoom in. Wow. And it says assistant regional manager. So not even assistant to the. So this is just. That was just one of those little details that I hadn't noticed before, but was just so satisfying to know. So he's become Dwight, basically. He's what he's become. What he hates. He's become the thing that Dwight wanted to be and never actually was. Amazing. He's the legit assistant regional manager. So Jim's at Stanford, and we have an Andy interview, and Andy is talking about Jim. He says. Big Tuna is a super ambitious guy, you know, cut your throat to get ahead kind of guy. But I mean, I'm not threatened by him. I went to Cornell. Ever heard of it? I graduated in four years. I never studied once. I was drunk the whole time. And I sang in the acapella group, Here Comes Treble. <laughs> All right. So everything I wanted to talk about is encapsulated in that quote. <laughs> okay. So first you were saying Cornell. I say, I really... I really am kind of impressed because the Cornell thing becomes a running reference for Andy. And I just think what foresight to put this into his very first interview. There's just something perfect about this name dropping of Cornell. And I don't know, how does Cornell read as being both like elite academically, but also probably elite socioeconomically? It like, what's, is. The, what's the Cornell vibe? Well, I I mean, you know, I would say that there's a lot of pretentiousness and mm -hmm. entitlement and, you know, what you'd expect. At the same time, I think that Cornell, at least this is my just vague understanding, signifies as like kind of one of the lesser IVs or something, or it's anxious about its like elite status with respect to like Princeton, Harvard, Yale. Yeah. yeah. Um, those kinds of things. And I think it also has a substantial public dimension in a way that maybe others don't or whatever. So it does have um, a big chunk of the 1%. <laughs> but at uh -huh. the same time, I was actually surprised looking up like how once uh, not too long ago, how long how much um, funding like they provide for students. Mm -hmm. um, and, 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 you know, so anyway, I think it's actually like a kind of complicated scene and uh but yeah my andy it felt very cornell to me just like having met enough cornell people where i'm like oh boy like, <laughs> like a real yeah, a real um at once superiority complex and then on the other hand a mm -hmm. deep crushing insecurity that would need one to constantly reference having gone to cornell um so mm -hmm. But I wanted to ask you about um, nicknames, because yeah. in that quote, he says Big Tuna, 
And as we learn, it's because on his first day, Jim ate a tuna fish sandwich. How do you feel about nicknames? And have you ever had one? Um, I like nicknames. I think it's funny that Andy, there's something like what, what kind of move is that? That Andy gives him a nickname yeah. immediately. You know, is it like, is it kind of a power move a little bit to give somebody a kind of cutesy, kind of ridiculous nickname? Um, it feels like a frat guy kind of thing. It does feel like kind of a frat guy thing. You're right. Especially when he will talk about his frat, his frat boyfriends, like none of them have normal names. You know, they're all like Broccoli Rob and they have all these names that are, yeah, yeah. So, so I think it's an interesting move because there's like a combination there of it being congenial and being aggressive yeah it feels like the kind of vibe andy is establishing that's a great description because yeah congenial but aggressive i just it's so fucking funny to me that he reads jim as cutthroat and competitive and ambitious yes he is like the most slackery guy in the world yes i actually that so a question i had i want to ask you about is how differently Jim gets read in this yes. context and like what is going on there because Andy yeah sees him as an ambitious cut your throat to get ahead Karen sees him also as being like too much you know she comments on his um the way he looks at the camera as being weird but also yeah. she has the reaction when they're in the conference room meeting and Jim says oh yeah I can cold call those people and she just looks annoyed you know like he's the too much go-getter yeah like he's a suck-up or something yeah like, like he's dwight now like he's dwight now and what has happened is it just the context that he's in is it the position like the fact that he is now you know coming in in a position that's above people i don't know did you have any ideas about kind of what's like what's going on there and the way that jim is getting perceived I just thought well, I was thinking of the Megan theory of character a bit and how characters test out different, you know, ways of being. And I was thinking one thing that changing context can do is reveal like it's like in this case, it's not so much that the context changes Jim, but as you said, the context changes people's readings of Jim and how they relate to him, at least so far. And that's really interesting to watch. Like, you know, I, I think to give like a kind of weird example, but like the person that was cool in high school and then they go to college and it's like they're just floundering because nobody is seeing them as popular or something like that. It's just an interesting, the same things that worked for you before aren't working now. Yeah. And then how does a character or a person scramble to change or adapt? And so, so there's that, but there's also just the ways in which you enter any social environment like a job or a department and you kind of it's like you're getting read but you're also getting read in relationship to whatever dynamics are already in place but you can't know them yes. and so I was just really fascinated by the reaction that Jim gets to the calculator gag because he's like okay you know I'm trying to prank him 
uh, and and it turns into like rage. Can explain that reaction. Explain that reaction for. I mean, uh, Andy like is so angry. Like initially he's like, oh ha ha ha, but then it's like when he puts his calculator. Uh huh. Yeah, and just this sense of like, who did it? I need to know who did it. The zoom, the way the the camera is like across, far across the room, and it zooms in right to Jim's face, and he's mm-hmm. like, "Don't let, don't say anything or whatever." It was so yeah. interesting. Um, That's one of my favorite lines. I just love the delivery of it with Andy. There is when he says something like, "You know, if if nobody says who they are, like if he doesn't find out who it is, he says, oh, wait, here, I've got the whole, I've got the whole thing.'" Um, Andy says, "Okay, who put my calculator in Jello?" good one but uh seriously guys who did this seriously guys who did this i need to know who put my calculator in jello or i'm gonna lose my freaking mind yeah. <laughs> it's a garbage can across yeah. the room. and there's just something about that line that so perfectly captures frustration <laughs> to me <laughs> that that's the line i find myself saying a lot you're who, like, who didn't do the reading in class? Myself, yes. <laughs> I'm lose that, my mind. that is internally me. So the jello here has become a thing because there were just, it was only in the first episode of season one, right? Where, yeah. where um Jim does the stapler and then Dwight's stapler and then Michael's mug, right? Yeah. So we haven't seen the jello in a while, but now he's he's bringing that to Stanford. Um, one of the other Andy things is that there's that moment when he points out a girl who is in a woman who's in the other room. She's like in the break room or something. She's blonde. She looks very attractive. He says something like, um, oh gosh, I wish I, I should have, I should have quoted the, the script for this, but basically he points out, he says something like pretty hot, right? And tells Jim, you know, stay away from her. She's totally crazy. So my question for you was, do you think she's crazy? Or is Andy just protecting his territory? A hundred percent Andy's protecting his territory. (laughs) I thought that this was an interesting, I think the first time I encountered Andy and the whole Stanford split, I was like, I don't want this. Why are we changing things? Um, But in retrospect, something that's interesting about Andy is like, we haven't really seen, uh, this is going to sound gross, but like a sexual competitor, (laughs) like, but like somebody who is, you know, there's Michael, but like, he's not, he's not trying to hit on women in the office per se. Right. And then there's like, he's a little bit of a different crowd than Jim. And then what's his face is, well, Jim is like a romantic. And then there's, um, Who's the bad guy? Ryan? <laughs> the, uh, huh? Ryan? No, Packer, Todd Packer. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, so Andy is kind of like the pathetic, well, Todd Packer's pathetic, but like nerdier version of Todd Packer, right? Or something like that. And like persnickety and and like, anyway. So so I, I thought I was like, this is kind of an interesting thing to bring into the mix that he's yeah. he's insecure and he's worried. He's in like a competitive vein and yeah. around women, around the job, around everything. Um, but I also liked the performance. I forget that guy's name, um, but I liked the way he said swim for open waters. <laughs> I just thought that was such good writing and really fun. <laughs> the way it's delivered is very funny. <laughs> 
much. That is so funny. Ed Helms. Do you think he tried to? That's it, Ed Helms. Do you think that he has hit on her, been rejected? Or do you think he's just like hoping to hit on her one day? My guess is that he has hit on her and been rejected. But that he's still hopeful. I don't think Andy gives up hope. Really, I do think he thinks that if Jim wanted her, he'd get her. So I think, yeah, so I think Andy's got hope for himself, but I think he also, yeah, definitely sees Jim as someone who would easily defeat him. Um, Two quick things, and then uh, I was going to ask about him. Oh, yeah, wait, what was your nickname? You said you like nicknames, which is just shocking. You, there are layers to you I have yet to discover. So uh, I have an onion, Tyler. Uh, let's see. Do I have a nickname? Um, I don't know. I I don't know. Yeah, I don't know that I really have a very strong nickname. Like sometimes people, there's some people who call me Meg. Um, is that an option? Has that been an option for me? It's an option. You're welcome to call me Meg. You can call me whatever you want, Tyler. What do you prefer? I thought you always preferred Megan. Oh, I have no preference. I mean, I've never really gone by Meg. Like I've never introduced myself. Shocking. But there are some people who just kind of like default to it. You know, like there are some people who know me well, like my sister or Dan. But then there are some people who are just kind of random people who just go to Meg. Like, you know, you'd maybe go from Michael to Mike, like like Daryl calling Michael Mike. And uh, yeah, you are welcome to call me that or anything. I um, had a time in high school when I really, really wanted to be named Charlie. And I heard that, and this, I'm confused. I thought I found out about my parents wanting to name me Charlie, but then I mentioned this to my mom at one point recently. And she was like, no, that is not how it was or something. But I basically just found out about the possibility of being named Charlotte and going by Charlie. And I just loved the name Charlie. And I think I liked the kind of boyishness of it. Yeah. Um, so I just had like there was one class in particular where we had a really nice teacher. So I just had her call me Charlie. So I have these like there are things where I've got, you know, a book that's from there and like my name in it is Charlie. Um, you know, when you like write it inside the cover. Yeah. Yeah. Um it's fascinating. So I had a Charlie, a Charlie time. I considered whether I was just gonna be Charlie in college, did not go for it. Um stuck with Megan, but but yeah, Tyler, you can call me any any nickname you like. Oh wow, that feels like a lot of pressure. But interesting um, that you thought I was going to be anti-nickname. What is it about my personality that projects <laughs> rejection? Uh, well, I do. I think that I don't love nicknames, and so I think I was looking for solidarity, you know. But um, but yet again, like at the beginning of this episode, we're far far apart. We're far um, apart. A lot of things. Tyler, why do you hate nicknames? I because I don't want to be called Ty. And I get that sometimes. And I'm like, I'm not Ty. Like that's not, you know. There was a brief period of time where I flirted with like sort of owning that. And I just didn't. I don't visually like it. What I like about Tyler is to some degree it is gender bendy or potentially so. I mean, yeah. I think it's, you know, um, so you know it is what it is but uh yeah i've gotten weird people will say tie tie and i'm like no 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 <laughs> that's it's like too cutesy when it's tie tie yeah. uh okay the other question this is my last note so i don't know if you've got a chunk but my last note is roy hot now tyler 
Damn it. That's the question I was going to ask you. Yes. <laughs> well, the answer is yes, he is. I was going to put it was this. Has Roy reached pinnacle attractiveness? Yes, he has. And I think the answer is yes. Okay, so clearly. Done and done. Clearly he caught our eyes. Um, was he on some other show? And Because he says like, oh, I've been working out. And I was like, was he on some other show or something? And they were like, oh, we have to explain why he looks good now or something i don't know actually look different though because here's my theory my theory was that it was not actually about how he looks but we have some new context so roy comes in with lunch for pam and asks pam if she wants chicken or fish and then that's where she explains you know that she called off the wedding but they froze all the food love it that they did that would totally do that i think it's a great idea um that feels like a thing you would love And then Roy, do you have the the Roy quote where he kind of explains his his little interview? Oh yeah, hold on, uh, hold on. So let me while you pull that up, yeah. let me let me tell you my theory. Oh okay, Roy, I think it is that we are getting this vulnerable Roy, and as we know, I think we, I think you have described this as a sexual orientation toward vulnerability. <laughs> And sad Roy, because the thing that looks most different about him to me, I think, is the sadness on his face. Like, his hurt, he looks defeated. And before he looked like he just either didn't care or like when he was dressing up for Pam's mom, like he was just being kind of a douche. So now we just get this sincere, defeated Roy. And, you know, you just want to like put your hands on either side of his face and tell him it's going to be okay. Is the beard new? I I can't. You know what? I think the beard is new. Yeah. I think the beard's new and I gotta say it's hot. I think the beard is hot, but you're right. I think it's, it's also just um, the vulnerability in that line when he's like, I got her winner back, you know? So he's gone from a person who has no idea how great, Pam is to a person now he realizes what he lost supposedly and yeah you and I have the same kink right which is uh insecurity and uh, vulnerability and anyway he says after Pam dumped me I am kind of stopped taking care of myself there and I hit bottom when a, a drunk driving arrest and there's a cut to that I've been working out and I'm you know I'm not gonna take her for granted I gotta win her back hilarious mugshot by the way yeah. <laughs> Um, it's wild in that thing it is amazing so funny Um, this is juxtaposed with pam saying i'm doing well i have my own apartment i'm taking art classes and i have lunch for the next five weeks so he wasn't taking care of himself but she is yeah yeah she is she's doing better (laughs) sorry i'm just excited to hear she's in art classes that's great that is great that she's in art classes i know it's really nice but yeah, so Roy is Roy is looking great, and he's just the most likable Roy of all time. Um, so we'll see what comes of him. Let's see. I think I had um, one or two other things about Stanford. Okay, this was in their conference room scene. There is a woman who works at Stanford who, on her like her face doesn't really look like Pam's. But otherwise, she looks exactly like Pam, like very deliberately so that from a distance or from behind or from the side, she's basically Pam. So she's Mm. got the same kind of button down shirt, kind of pastel colored. 
Her hair is the same color as Pam, exact same style, like exact wow. same kind of curl. So her face is different, but it made me think about when Katie comes to the office um, in the hot girl episode and Pam and Michael comes out and is like, oh, this is Pam 6.0. It felt like Pam is like that woman 6.0 kind of, I which yeah. is a really unkind way of putting it. But it felt oh. like, or just that, um, like Pam is Jim's dream girl. And so kind of like, let me do one of those analogies. Kind of like um, hot girl, Katie is to, Katie is to Michael as Pam is to Jim. No, I've, I lost it. I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to set up one of those things, but it's sort of like, she had this woman has all of the form of Pam, but just a different face on her. So it's like there's this, I don't know, hauntingness of Pam that is there. And like once he actually looks at her, like it's not her. So Pam is the 6.0, right? Pam is the one that he wants. But there's this, it just was really interesting to me that there's another woman who is very deliberately styled to look like Pam. I totally forgot this. I don't remember this. So it's real. I'm going to go back and watch that part because that's really fascinating. Um, your Here, I, uh, let me just send you a picture of it real quick. Um, yeah. So, so I took a, I took a picture of it. I just think like the, the shirt, the hair, the fact that she is sitting next to Jim in the conference room meeting in the first conference room meeting in the one at the end, which is when I think they're getting oh, a present wow. from Mr. Brown there's just an open seat next to Jim and he's kind of like looks at it and remembers sitting next to Pam in their diversity day. But you see what I'm saying? It's crazy. Yeah. You're totally right. Crazy. Yeah. So she's very much put there and I don't know what Did to a double take. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know quite what to make of it, but just kind of a, kind of a fun fact and an interesting element. Um, I feel like I had one other. Oh yeah, um, a couple of little details in the office there. There's a poster behind Jim and Karen that says "Window of Opportunity." It's like those kind of inspiration posters that there are in the Scranton office too. It's like the same brand almost, oh but it's God. a window of opportunity. So I just thought that was kind of a, you know, cheesy and funny poster. Also, Jim has a little post-it note on his computer that says smile. Huh. And I was wondering, I was like, who wrote that for him? Yeah. Pam... I, I wonder if that's interesting. Is that a post-it from Pam? Like, it's not something that he would write to himself. I don't think so. So there's that. And um, I think that I think that might might wrap up Stanford for now. I don't know. What do you think about Josh and the manager there in comparison to Michael? Eh, we didn't really get enough, but it was just kind of funny to see somebody. Uh, I, just his reference to like, oh, we have to do diversity training again because of them, you know. Um, yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I was like, this guy's boring. Yeah. But on the other hand, I'm sure he's better at managing an office. <laughs> I, the thing that really stood out to me was Karen. I'm excited to see where this goes, but. And I think maybe I mentioned this last time, but just her kind of doing the gym face to the camera was mm -hmm. both funny, but also like, uh oh, is the show becoming too aware of itself? 
But it was also interesting to have another person in, you know, it's that thing, right? Where it's like something that was normalized at the uh, Scranton branch now yeah. is strange at the Stanford branch. And uh, so, you know, I was kind of, those two things I'll be tracking. Yeah. It's interesting. This goes back, something you said earlier actually made me think about this, but how much identity it seems here is dependent on the context as opposed to just being like who somebody is, you know, like, yeah, Jim's identity being like how much it shifts based on the context, based on how different people are reading him in this new place and in this new position. So we'll see where that goes with Karen. The only other thing I guess with Jim, he sends Dwight and Michael a gaydar. Yeah. It has bisexual in the middle. I thought that was amazing. It does. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have a Dundee? Um, I, I want to go second. I feel like I need another moment of reflection. I mean, my Dundee is going to be obvious, I think. It's just, I can't think of an alternative Dundee. Oscar? It's going to be Oscar. (laughs) (laughs) And it's the patience. It's the gay patience award uh, for putting up with all of the insane homophobia from Angela and Michael and the whole office. And just, uh, and when he says this has been the most backwards day, you know, (laughs) uh, I just, I felt for him and the way that he comes out on top in the, well, to some degree in the end, I was like right on. So I got to give it to you, Oscar. You have gay patience. Gay patience award. Well, well deserved and hard fought. So let me tell you about some of my thinking around my potential Dundies. One of them was for Phyllis, because I felt like Phyllis just really introduced some key information about Michael in high school. Yeah. So I wanted to wanted to consider her. I thought about Dwight for the award as well for his openness to change. Because, for example, when he says, Michael appears to be gay too, and yet he is my friend. I guess I do have a gay friend. <laughs> He's seen Michael crying, which I guess is another way, like how like what is what is considered gay? So crying um as a man. But then I think you're right. I mean, the force behind the Oscar argument is too strong. So I am going to put Dwight and Phyllis as honorable mentions for the day, but I am giving Oscar the win. I think it's I think it's the right choice. But this reminds me that we need to start tracking now our Dundies for our end of the season thing. So I I'll, will I'll start adding them because I've already got the spreadsheet going. I'll start oh, adding fabulous. them to the spreadsheet. <laughs> One other note actually that's kind of, that I just just came to mind. So you know, Dwight wants all of the quote office gays to identify themselves. And I think maybe the funniest thing then is that the very end of the episode is him being identified. Oh, that's brilliant. Because he's got the, he's using the gaydar and he's putting it right. So it's probably just a metal detector. Um, and he like scans it over Oscar and it gets by Oscar's belt and it beeps. And then Dwight like scans it, not really intentionally, but he kind of pulls it back scans it over himself and it gets close to his <laughs> belt buckle and it is just beep and he goes oh no <laughs> <laughs> and 
And I also just, and like, he just, he doesn't move it. Like he's kind of stunned by it. Yeah. And I think one of the other things I, I love about this is his belief in the gaydar. And like back to that idea of sexuality being this kind of um, underlying secret where like, it's not even necessarily known to him. But right. it can be identified. And if it is identified, it is true. And it is fundamental. And yeah. so yeah. I just love it that it's like the end of the episode is the outing of Dwight to himself amazing what oh my god that's such a good reading I love it <laughs> so we did it we did it in two episodes two episodes there were, I think it was worth it I think there was a lot to unpack there was too much, there was too much to unpack so oh. next time we'll be doing season three episode two I think we're going to be able to do it in one episode oh, yeah. yeah we'll be we'll be back on track but don't hesitate everybody to email us uh the best office hours podcast at gmail.com and or uh reach out to us on Instagram or Twitter um thanks for listening thanks for listening bye